People said, this is it. Amen? This is it. We are so glad that you are here with us today. Thank you so much for coming. And let me just once again, I've done this, I know, a couple of times before, but I just want to say thank you to the praise team. Uh, they are doing an incredible job of leading us in worship. And I hope you know that that just doesn't happen. Um, they meet here on Thursdays. I know that time. As a, as a team and practice and go over what God wants to do through them on Sunday morning. I appreciate so much your sacrifice. Good to have the choir back with us as worship team and as a special. Uh, boy, I, I hollered out Angie, sing it, sister, and she did. So grateful to be here to worship this one true incredible God. Now, what's happening, we are on a journey, 2012, his story, my story, from Genesis to Revelation. We're on that journey, and now we're, we finally made it to the New Testament after going through the Old Testament, and we're doing a series called Four Portraits, One Savior, and that, his name is Jesus Christ. And four guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each wrote a gospel, a, a story about Jesus through their lens, through their lens. And so cool because they're all just a little bit different, exactly what you'd expect if it was real. If they'd got together and sat around a table and said, okay, let's write the story of Jesus, and all the details lined up, you'd be a little suspicious. But these four guys got together and wrote these stories of Jesus, this account of his life. It's just incredible. Uh, again, we know more about Jesus than we do any of the Roman emperors that lived during his time. It's just incredible how God has preserved and protected um, his work. Last year, or last week through Matthew, we saw Jesus as Messiah. As Messiah, the expected one. We learned how that he was going to build his church. And the gates of hell could not even prevail against that. We also closed with the concept and idea, Jesus sharing that he would die. And Peter said, no, Lord, no. And Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. Because Peter was thinking like a man and not like a man with God's own heart. And that leads us into Mark. And Jesus was a servant through the eyes of Mark. Now, Mark was a guy who was really kind of came on the scene after Jesus. Most theologians believe that he got his information by interviewing and talking with Peter. This is probably one of the earliest Gospels ever written, somewhere around 55 or 60 uh, A.D. And, and, and he would sit down and say, Peter, what was it like to walk with Jesus? And what's really cool is, in case you see yourself as a failure, in case you've messed up, you say, God could never use me. Well, John Mark's got an incredible history. John Mark was one of the guys uh, when Paul and Barnabas were going on, on their, their journeys, and, and they invited John Mark to go along. And things got a little hot on the mission trail. People were beating up the guys and stuff, and John Mark quit and went home. Went home. And yet we find now that God uses him still to write an incredible gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So take your Bibles, please, and turn to Mark in chapter 10. Mark in chapter 10. We're going to look at Jesus Christ as servant and an incredible lesson that we need to learn as a church about our Savior and how it plays out in our lives. Mark chapter 10, please, if you'll turn there, starting in verse number 32. Now, we were, we were at the football game um, Friday night. Hey, how about the dogs? Woo! Shoot that thing. Yeah. Um, the uh, Aces went back to Mount Carmel with a few bite marks. Shall we just say that? Uh, they, they know they have been to the doghouse. They know they've been to the doghouse, all right? So, but anyway, we were sitting there, and Roth came over and sat by me, and uh, we were thinking, thinking about talking about the 2000 season. And, I, you know, that was my first year as your pastor. And I will never, 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 never forget that 
especially that six or seven months, that, that season was just so incredible. These young men kind of grew up together, and they came together to form this incredible, incredible football team and went totally undefeated throughout the season, of course, ultimately winning uh, the state championship. And I really think that ha- I think there was a lot of talent in that team. Uh, that was part of it. But I think there's a lot of camaraderie relationship in that team. I think that was part of it. But I also think they understood the concept of team. You know, someone wisely said there's no I in team. When you come to team, you work together. And that involves a certain measure of servanthood, of humility. Um, I can't tell you, and I was there for every game, and I can't tell you the names of every position that was played. And not because because of this kid, now a young man, happened to be a member of our church. But one young man I remember in the position he played was Matt Oshel. Matt Oshel was the center. Um, again, not the most glamorous of positions, but it was his job to, one, pass the ball to the quarterback. Okay? He did that. And then also to take hits. Um, he really, even then, um, Matt could have been the entire uh, defensive line. I mean, the other guys were optional. All he had to do was stand there, and he wiped out the entire team. That's just why, you know, he's a big boy, and he's a big boy today. And so, so his job was to take hits and take hits and take hits. And he couldn't even concentrate on what's about to happen. He had to focus on that ball getting in the quarterback's hands. And, and again, a lot of people say, well, you know, the center, you know, what's that? That's part of the team. And that's hugely important. And it was Matt's humility in that position, his willingness to be servant for the team that made that team largely successful. And you know what's really cool is, is that, you know, in his moment of glory, when we went up to the state championship game, you know, they're announcing the starting team. And boy, Mike, you remember this. You know, they announced him as Matt O'Shell. <laughs> so all of Illinois thought Matt O'Shell, not Matt O'Shell. But, but, you know, he humbled himself and served ultimately uh, for the glory of the team, but also the glory of Harrisburg. And you know, that's just like us. If, if we as a church, if we as believers are really going to, um, to see what God wants to do through us, we've got to be like Jesus and be a servant. To be a servant. And that's not really how we think about it, but how it is. And in Mark chapter 10, the greatest verse probably with Jesus as servant begins in this scripture. Notice the magnificent plan. The Bible says in verse number 32 of Mark chapter 10, they were on the road going to Jerusalem. You know, Jesus was not one to sit around. I I know several guys who are just doers, you know, and so difficult when they get injured or something that they have to sit around. I often tell them, I know this is hard for you because you're not a sitter. Jesus was not a sitter. Jesus was a doer, and he was constantly on the road, on the move, ministering to people. But here, he's on a particular road. He's on a road that's going to lead him to Jerusalem. And let me say this. Jerusalem may well be the holy city. But when Jesus was going to Jerusalem on this journey, which will ultimately end in the passion of the Christ, Jerusalem represented literally the gates of hell. In, in Jerusalem, the place was filled with people. And if we could see with larger eyes, I think, we would see a lot of demonic activity. But we would see that the forces were coming together that would lead to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, His death. What they did not understand was 
that the demons and the forces of evil, including the Roman army, were all pawns in the hand of Almighty God, fulfilling His magnificent plan. Amen? So, He's on His way. He's going to Jerusalem. And watch this. You've got to love this. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. Now, understand, it was traditionally the rabbi, the teacher, would lead the group. Please do not stop with that interpretation. Jesus is leading the group because he's a man on a mission. Jesus is leading the way, knowing full well, having full disclosure, having all knowledge what waits for him in Jerusalem. He leads the way. Some of you men, are, are you've got this picture of Jesus that hung in so many classrooms, and we see Jesus with his long brown hair and his beard and his blue eyes, which I don't think Jesus had blue eyes, and he's kind of sitting here like this, you know. And you look, and it doesn't look very manly. Well, again, imagine a man going to Jerusalem to suffer the deaths of deaths. And he's leading the way. There's no hesitation. He's not at the back of the crowd. He's at the front. He's the general leading the charge. He, and I love, the, I love in the story of Gettysburg, where Longstreet says to General Lee, General, you can't lead from behind. Well, Jesus was not a savior who led from behind. Jesus was a general who led from the front. He's on his way to Jerusalem knowing what waits him there. And the Bible says that they were astonished. But those who followed him were afraid. The, the ones the closest, Mark thinks there's one group. That's what the commentator said. There may have been two groups. maybe may have been disciples plus the other followers. It may have been one large group. It may have been just the disciples. Not really sure. But there are two emotions going on. There's this. Can you believe it? This is the third time. He's fixed to tell them what's going to happen in Jerusalem. The third time. And they're going, can you believe him? What a man. What a hero. He knows what waits for him, and he leads the way into battle. That's the kind of Savior that we serve. He may be meek, and he may be mild, but he is the general leading his army into the gates of hell. They're astonished. And yet there's a certain amount of fear. Because they're human. They know what's going to happen to him. At least they're getting a grasp of what's going to happen. They know it's not going to bode well for them or for him. And so the Bible says this. Taking the twelve aside, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. This is again the third time. In chapter 8, verse 31, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I've got to die there. And 931, he, he says, well, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and knowing that, one of you is going to betray me. I'm going to be betrayed in the hands of sinner. And here he adds the element of the Roman government, the Gentiles. This is what he says. Listen, we are going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. Note the wording. And they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. And... They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him. And they will kill him. Doesn't it just seem from hearing those words 
that is somehow not a magnificent plan. It's a malignant plan that things are going to go really wrong. They, 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 they. What we forget is that God always has the last word. You see, the Scripture says they will, I will be handed over, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flock him. They will kill him. And, aren't you glad there are ands in the Bible? Come on. And he will rise again. (laughs) Yes, he will. See, listen, you need to know this for your life. God always has the last word. They will, they will, they will, they will, they will, but He will. He will. Don't you let Satan convince you that you've got a wimpy God. Don't let Satan convince you that your God's on vacation in Florida. Don't let Satan convince you that your God doesn't care. He is God. He's got a plan. He's sovereign. But He's on your side. He's on your side. He will rise again. Now, we're certain by now, the the, the twelve are just blown away. They're wild and they're focused. They're saying, come on, Jesus, let's go to war. No. Just like us, sometimes we don't exactly get it. And I titled the second point, the maligned pair. The maligned pair. The, the, um, the unfocused pair. The word malign means to, to cause harm. Pair. The Bible says this. Then, immediately following this great, hey, they will, they will, they will, they will. But I, the two, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, this doesn't sound like a child. We want you to, to do something for us if we ask you. Well, what do you want me to do for you? He asked them. And they answered him, well, here's the deal. Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Now, you've got to get this. Imagine your best friend's on his deathbed. And he's asked to see you. So you go in there and he goes, you know, I know I'm fixing to die. I just wanted to tell you that our friendship has meant a whole lot to me. I want you to know that that I regret having to leave this place because of our deep friendship. And that person, you looking at that dead, dying person going, well, that's cool, but can I have your Jeep when you're gone? That's the context. Now, some, some, few theologians try to say, well, they understood. They understood what Jesus was saying, and so they understood He was going to eventually be in glory. That's not what the majority say. The bottom line is, they didn't get it. They still thought somehow that there was going to be an immediate throne, that their Messiah was going to overthrow it all. And at a minimum, at a minimum, they minimized the passion. They minimized the passion. Their question, their question is so out of place. It shows such deep insensitivity to the things of God. Please, hear your pastor's heart today. Do not be guilty of that in your life. The big picture in life for the believers of Jesus Christ, for the followers of Jesus Christ, is all about God, 
His work in this incredible world. Don't be guilty of minimizing the passion of the cross, the love of God, and the need to reach the lost in our world. That is what God is about. And that is what we should be about. But it's really cool. Jesus doesn't really rebuke them. Okay? But he does say this. Verse 38. But Jesus said to them, You really don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Now, this, this sentence is so rich in meaning. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Now, let me pause there. In, in Hebrew language, I know the New Testament is written in Greek, but, but in Old Testament and in the Hebrew culture, to drink the cup means to experience the judgment of God for sin. So Jesus is saying, do you understand the cup? Are you able? And by the way, they, they, they were not. Because of what Jesus was fixing to do on the cross, there could only be one Redeemer. And it was Jesus Christ. You know, thousands of songs have been written about what occurred 2,100 years ago on a cross like this. The Roman soldiers were really good at what they did. They were, they were efficient killers of men. And, and for Jesus to experience the, the flogging, for Jesus to experience the loss of blood through the crown of thorns, even before the cross, for Jesus to have to carry probably a hundred pound piece of timber, and fail underneath the weight of that shows you just how efficient they were at their job. For him to be nailed probably through the wrist and through the feet and then hung up on a cross like this. And I was telling my friend Randy this morning how that if you, if you hung down like this, then you couldn't breathe and so you pull yourself up to try to breathe. And that intensified the pain. And so you fell down. And there the victim would seesaw between life and death, trying to breathe, but could not because of the intense pain. And there you hung until you died. And if you didn't die quick enough, they either broke your legs or stabbed a spear in your side. They were efficient at what they did. But you've got to understand something. And David alluded to it already in, in his comments in the worship time. That physical experience was the death of deaths. The most horrible death a person could experience was the crucifixion. But that is really not what Jesus is saying when he said, Are you able to drink the cup I drink? The cup he is speaking about. Was that verse in, in Corinthians 7, 20, 1 Corinthians 7, 21, where it says, And he became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And you must understand 
that on Jesus Christ that day, the full wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ as He became sin. The punishment for sin was death. And God's wrath was poured out on the Son of God that day. That's why the Bible teaches, and we might touch on it next week in Luke's Gospel, where the Bible says it turned dark. And Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason why is because Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, experienced the wrath of God and became sin. And God the Father turns His back on His own Son. That's incredible. That God in the flesh became sin and God the Father poured out His wrath. Listen, listen. Wrath that you deserved. Don't you sit there in your comfortable blue chair and miss that today. You deserve the full wrath of God. That's what hell is all about. It's an expression of the full wrath of God. But because of grace, because of the spilt blood of Jesus, and because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you will never experience the wrath of God because of grace. That's incredible. That's incredible. And that's what Jesus was saying. I've got this cup that's coming. And I must experience my Father's wrath. I have a baptism that I have to go through. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 15, Jesus said, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how compelled I am. How driven I am. Until it's accomplished. I just am overwhelmed today that the fact that Jesus Christ, if He could have, would have ran to the cross out of pure obedience to the Father, but full devotion to you because He loved you so much. Grace so amazing. Grace so divine. Love so compelling. Love so divine. How incredible. And all this is going to take place in just a matter of days, two weeks. It's going to happen. And then, and then you get this. They said, we're able. I said, didn't get it. We're able. And Jesus said, yeah, you're going to. You're going to drink this cup. Not in redemptive form, but in suffering. James, of James and John, would be killed by Herod with a sword a few months from now. John the only disciple not to be martyred, but lived his, much of his life, older years, exiled to the Isle of Patmos. You will drink this cup of suffering. Jesus' followers will suffer. Now, I need to tell you this. In the culture we're growing up in now, if you truly are a disciple of Jesus Christ and abide by these teachings of this, this Messiah, you need to understand you will suffer. You don't have to go to Africa to suffer. You don't have to go to Jamaica to suffer. You don't have to go to Haiti to suffer. As we follow Christ in this culture, we will suffer. You will drink this drink, and, and you will be baptized. But listen, it's not mine to give. It's up to the Father. He, he, he has it for those He's prepared for. And here's what's really sad. Jesus has spilled His heart about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. We get this insensitive question. The guys don't understand this cup idea, much like we don't. We think the cross was terrible because of the Roman soldiers, and it was. But there's so much more going on there. 
And all the while, over here is Jesus and, and, and James and John. They're having this discussion. And who's standing over here? The ten. And apparently because the Bible says in verse 41, when the other apostles heard this, so they were like two miles away. They were over there. And they could, you know, like y'all do, you know, in four years sometimes, you're like listening on conversations. They heard just enough to hear left throne, right throne. Can we have? They heard enough of that. And the ten got really fired up at James and John. I mean, it says it. When the other ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. They were fired up. Now remember, we're, we're weeks, just a few weeks from the cross. And Satan has managed to pull it off. Here we are. Jesus just spilled his heart about Calvary. And the boys are having a fuss. And the fuss is over. Who's going to be great in the kingdom? Who's going to be the big dog in church? Who's going to be the big name in church? Who's going to sit on this throne or that throne? Satan won that day. Satan won that day. And he wins in church all the time. I I didn't get to be asked. I, I, I didn't get to serve. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. And Jesus said, we got to do something here. And I think Jesus would say that today. we got to do something here. My goodness. I, and by the way, just so you'll know, it's not just, it's not just inner church. It's infra-church. Dorsville's jealous of First Baptist. First Baptist jealous of Dorsville. Dorsville's jealous of Banks and Forest. Banks and Forest jealous of, of Little Chapel. Little Chapel's jealous of the Presbyterians. And Presbyterians jealous of the Methodists. And we wonder why we can't win the world to Jesus. So Jesus gives an answer. Here's what he says in the Maudi principle. Now, we preachers work hard on these points. I hope you appreciate that. You perhaps have heard of Maudi Thursday. And that is the name given to the events of the Passion that occurred on Thursday night. Of which, one of, is when Jesus took a towel and basin and served the others by washing their feet. So there's a Maudi principle to be learned. Here's what it says. Then Jesus called them over. Hey guys, come join our group. That's pretty cool. Hey guys, come on over here. He said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them. And their men of high positions exercise power over them. And, of course, the guys knew instantly. I said, oh, yeah, the Roman government. Sure, we know about that. You know, Rome, Rome appoints you as something. You're a big dog in town. We know all about that. And the big dog in town rules over the others. You know, it's kind of like the old, the old saying, um, he who has the money, okay, has power. You know, he who has the name has power. And he says, yeah, that's, that's, we understand that. Then Jesus says basically this. Now listen, that's how the world does business. The world does business by saying your name, your power, your influence, and your prestige will get you greatness. Jesus is about to say, I want to give you the better way, the God way. So we have what I have entitled the glory road. Here's what he says. But 
Now notice how emphatic it is. But it must not be like that among you. I honestly believe if our Savior was standing here today and he was talking about, if he was preaching this sermon, he would look you in the eye and tell you this. It must not be that way with you. I think he would look at the Dorsville Baptist Church and say, Hey, Dorsville, I know how the world does business, but that should never be like you are. I think he would look at the Southern Baptist Convention and say, I know how the world does business. I know the politics of the world. But it must not be ever named that way among you. I, I know, I know perhaps around the deacons. And I've got wonderful deacons here. Please understand that. But in some churches, it's like a dog fight. Jockeying for position. And Jesus would tell those deacons, that should not be that way with you. In the youth group with the students. Trying to be the top dog on campus. You know, who's going to be the head captain of the football team? Who's going to be the head cheerleader? Who's going to be the, the best friend now? It should not be that way with you. And then he says, contrary. In opposition to that, that the person with the name, the person with the money, the person with prestige rules the group. And contrary to that, he says, if you want to become great among you, you must be your servant. If he wants to become great among you, you must become servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be slave. He said, if you want to be great in my kingdom, then you've got to serve others. You don't become great in my kingdom by throwing your, your influence around or by throwing your, your name around. You become great in my kingdom by serving others. That's how you become great. You want to know how to become a great church, Brent? Serve others. You serve others. And not just serve others. You serve others in the name of Jesus. You serve others in the name of Jesus. And however that plays out, in, if you're visiting from another church, however that plays out in your church, and you know how that kind of plays out in our church, if you've been coming here a while. But if you want to be known as a great person, kingdom person, you do it by serving others. About... I guess it was a couple years ago. I got a call from a friend, Bob Dickerson, who pastors First Baptist Church of Mary. Bob and I go way back, probably about 20 years. We used to pastor in the same association. I knew him when he was on state and Ducoin, and now he's a pastor of the First Baptist Church of Marion. And he called me. He said, we're having a deacon banquet. Would you mind coming and speaking at the deacon banquet? I, he said about 15 minutes. I said, whew shoot that thing. I did it in 15 minutes. So I went down there and you know what I took? I took one of these. I did. Now that one was new. This one's used. What was it used? And I told the deacons there at the First Baptist Church of Marion, I said, guys, in some churches... The idea of deacon has been corrupted. In some churches, deacons control the power. They are the pastor police or the trustees police or the members police. And they kind of rule the roost. And let me just say, I mean this too. You will not find that at Dorsville Baptist Church. 
And I'm not saying that because they're sitting out here. I know the men I serve with. And that is not their mentality. But in some churches, it is. And I said to them, I believe that if you are a deacon, that you should be familiar with these. A toilet brush. Because the word dikonos, dikonos, means to serve. And the first deacons in Acts chapter 6 were appointed to serve tables. And if you want to be a great deacon, don't ever be afraid to pick up a toilet brush and clean a toilet. And I believe, frankly, Donnie, when we get around to ordaining another deacon, we need to give him three things. We need to give him a Bible. We need to give him a certificate. And we need to give him a toilet brush. I don't know where this idea came. I, and I know their heart, and we so appreciate it. One, if, if you ever want to be a, if you ever get asked to be a deacon, let me give you the right answer. If, if you go, oh, yeah, I want to be a deacon, that's probably in the end of the interview. But if you go something like this, you know, I am not worthy to be a deacon, you'll probably get your second interview. Cat's out of the back. But let me say this. I've always been confused by that. It doesn't take a whole lot to clean a toilet. Oh, you're supposed to be spirit-filled and all that. I understand that. But when you become a deacon at Dorisville, our question is this. Are you willing to serve the people of God? Now, Jesus says the same thing. Ask my followers, are you ready to pick up one of these? If you want to be great in the kingdom, you need to have a toilet brush with your name on it. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you need to know how to work a toilet plunger. That's what we need to do. The problem is, we find that offensive. We are above cleaning a toilet. We're above plunging a toilet. And that means we're above going to the projects and sharing or helping people there. We're above, we're above. And Jesus says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Contrary. If you'll be great in my kingdom, you've got to serve. If you'll be great in my kingdom... You've got to be a slave to others. Now, who said that? Jesus did. The one who died for you. And I don't know how we twist it around, but the biblical truth is God's called us to serve. Where do you get all that? Well, I got it from verse 45. For even the Son of Man Even Emmanuel, God in the flesh. Come on now. Even the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Even the blessed Savior of the world. Even the Redeemer of the world. Even the opener of blind eyes. Even the man who could touch and heal leprosy. Even the man who could speak to death and say, Death, let go, Lazarus, come out. Even the Son of Man did not come To be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. Even Jesus came to serve and to die. Now I'm going to look you dead in the eye. I'm going to tell you this. As Christ followers... We are called to serve and to die. 
I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but it is Christ who lives in me. Can I ask you a question? Would you be willing? Oh, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not saying you've got to go get Adrian's toilet brush and clean a toilet. But would you? I'm not saying if you go in there and the toilet's clogged up, which, by the way, happened to me and John Hunt when we had a thousand people in the building. It was not fun. It, I just want to tell you, John, where are you at? John, John Hunt here? I know the same was here. It wasn't fun. I'm not saying you've got to do that, but would you be willing? Would you be willing today to be like your Savior and say, Jesus, I'll serve others in your name. And if you do, if you do, there's a good possibility that when you get to heaven, you just might be listed among the greats of God's Would you bow your heads right there, please? My invitation is twofold today. First off, it's it's to you who perhaps heard today about the cup that Jesus endured. And you understand that right now, because your sins have not been forgiven, you are subject to the full wrath of God. To put it in terms that we're familiar with, If you were to die without forgiveness of your sins, you'd be destined to this place called hell. As I heard at Keith's funeral this week, not because necessarily you're bad, because there's a lot of good people that end up in hell, but because your sins are not forgiven. In just a few minutes, my friend Brent Holloway is going to be standing down front. And that is not, if you come forward today, that does not save you. But the truth is, we got some answers to some questions you might have. And we would love to tell you what Jesus has done for us in our lives. And I want you to understand, Jesus is calling you to servanthood today. Not pink Cadillacs and never getting sick. To follow the greatest teacher and the Savior of the world. And apply His teachings to your life. And His vision for this world to your life. If that's something God's calling you to today, come and take Brent by the hand and say, Brent... I know I've sinned against God. I know I need forgiveness. I believe Jesus died for me. And I want God's grace in my life. And I want to follow Him. And we'll show you exactly how that can happen in your life. For those of us who are already Jesus followers today, are you ready to serve? Are you ready to die? Are you ready to serve? Would you be willing to pick up a toilet brush today if Jesus asked you to? Would you be willing to take a plunger? If Jesus asked you to. Is there anything you wouldn't do if Jesus asked you to? May I ask you today to lay that at his feet and say, Jesus, there's an element of pride in my life in this certain area, and I need to lay that down. Yes, Jesus, I'll serve. I'll die to self. I'll do what you ask me to do. Perhaps you've trusted Jesus Christ as Savior already, but you've never been obedient in baptism. I always make it clear that baptism does not save a person, but is the first step of obedience to your new master. If you trusted Christ and you've been baptized, Brother Brent would be glad to talk with you about that.
And then today, we are so blessed to have you as a guest. And if you perhaps you've been here many times, but you've never sealed the deal, you never said, I want to be a part of the Doorsville team. You're already part of the family, but I want to be part of the team. I want to serve in ways perhaps I cannot by not being a member. We would love to have you come and join our church today, to join our family, not for being served, but for the purpose of serving. And we'd love to tell you how that can happen in your life. Let's pray together. God, thanks for your incredible, incredible word. Father, thank you that you are so contrary to the world. And it just means you're real because if you're going to build a kingdom in the world's eyes, you would never talk about servanthood. But you weren't building it in the world's eyes. You were building it in your Father's eyes. Thank you for being a servant leader, Jesus. Help us to do the same. Father, for my friend here who's never trusted Jesus, may today be that very day. You call them to repentance of their sin and to a life of service with you and others. For our brothers and sisters in Christ who have already made that commitment, Lord, would you please, through the Holy Spirit, show us specific areas in our life that we need to surrender. And God, if there's that tingle of pride that says we want to be the quarterback and not the center, God, break that down in our lives. If we find ourselves saying that we want to be in the band but only as the lead singer and not the rhythm guitar player, Break that down in our lives. Bring us to a point, God, that whatever you ask us to do, we would be willing. Holy Spirit, please help in this invitation. It is only you who can speak to hearts. And Jesus, I pray this in your most precious name. Amen.